Turn, if you have your Bible still open, otherwise, uh, if you could like to turn to Luke chapter 4. Um, this is not really a part of a series or anything like that. I, I just need to preach today. Uh, I thought, but I've been thinking a lot about Luke's gospel in recent times. And we're going to be looking at this, uh, this amazing synagogue scene, or church scene if you like, here in Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. It's wonderful to think, isn't it, of Jesus there in a service that, while in many ways the physical surrounds would have been very different to this building, there would have been things that were happening there that we would have recognised the reading of God's word, the singing of his praises, the prayers of God's people being offered up and exposition of God's word being given to the people. If you want to find, uh, you know, the ancient, the most ancient version of what we do, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, you would find it in a synagogue like the one that we see described in Nazareth. And it it gives birth to a marvellous idea, isn't it, of, of Jesus preaching, him, Jesus himself preaching in a service of worship. Perhaps we've all shared in that idea as almost like a fantasy or an amazing idea. Imagine that, Jesus coming in and being the preacher in the worship service, coming on the Lord's day and bringing God's word. As we can see, though, in this particular narrative, can't we, the response is not exactly a positive one. There's a very angry and hostile response to the preaching of God's word. And so it continues often to be, doesn't it? Even in this time of the Lord's blessing on us, the risen and ascended Lord continuing to send his word to us by his spirit. Still we find this, resistance and opposition to his word. But here we have, in Luke's account, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is the beginning of his um, ministry beyond, he's been, uh, he's been baptised, he's been anointed, He's been tempted in the wilderness and now begins that first great part of his public ministry in Galilee. And each of the Gospels has a different uh, occasion or incident described to talk about the beginning of Jesus ministering in public. And this is Luke's. And it's wonderful, as I was saying earlier, about here we have a sermon. We have God's word opened amongst the people by Jesus. And in that sense, even though the response is hostile, there's a tremendous encouragement there too, isn't there? To think here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry is Jesus preaching from the word amongst God's people. And if you like, enclosed in that, is all true and faithful preaching. By God's grace, whatever is true and faithful about the preaching you have now, in a sense, stems 
from this Sabbath morning in Nazareth. Because it is still the Lord Jesus who sends out his word, doesn't he? And he sends out his living word by his spirit to awaken, to proclaim Christ, to convict, and yes, to spur on a response, whatever that might be. And so it's a wonderful thing for us to look at this Sabbath morning in Nazareth. There's three things we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at the great claim that Jesus makes, and that's where I want to spend most of our time. We're going to be looking at the great claim that Jesus makes. Then we're going to see the challenge that Jesus gives. And then finally, the response that Jesus receives. So let's look first then at the claim that Jesus makes. There's certainly, I suppose, a sense of expectation, isn't there? The beginning of this narrative that we have here. And yet, at the same time, this is an ordinary Sabbath in an ordinary Galilean town called Nazareth. The difference, though, of course, is that Jesus' name is starting to be known. And this is his hometown. And so he's coming to those who he grew up with, who knew his family, who were extended relations of his family. These are the ones before whom he preaches on this Sabbath morning. So he goes to synagogue. Incidentally, by the way, I don't want to spend too much on this, but this is one of the earliest descriptions we have in any text, both either in the Bible or outside of it, of a synagogue service. And so it's fascinating in that regard as well. He comes in, uh, he's ushered to the front, he's handed the reading, he's handed the, the scrolls of the scriptures, he opens it and he reads from Isaiah 61, although there is a phrase or two uh, thrown in from Isaiah 58 as well. Now, there is a bit of a debate which we can't finally solve as to whether this was a reading that Jesus chose himself or whether this was the set reading for that Sabbath. There's a bit of a debate as to what that might be. It probably doesn't really need to concern us. Nevertheless, this is the reading that Jesus reads out on this Sabbath morning. And so he reads those verses that we see there in Luke 4, verses 18 to 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." closes the book and he sits down. Everyone's eyes are on him. And then he gives a very brief, perhaps this was just a summary of his sermon, or maybe this was all that he said, a very brief and yet astonishing statement. We see it there, don't we, in verse 21. He said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What an electrifying sermon. Brief, sharp, to the point, but astonishing. Completely and utterly astonishing. 
that a man would stand or sit down amongst God's people and say, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears this morning. Amazing, isn't it? When I was a boy, I had a a children's version of the legends of King Arthur that I loved. I loved this book. I think it fell apart in the end. I read it so many different times. And my fav- one of my favourite episodes in the legends of King Arthur that I read was right towards the start where young Arthur, there he was with his foster father, Sir Ector, forgot his sword, had to go back and get the sword. And you remember the story, he, he sees a, a random sword in a stone and young Arthur has no idea that whoever draws, who's able to draw this stone will be the next king of England, of Britain. And so he takes the sword out and runs off, returns it. His older brother claims that he's the one that drew this sword. Then he has to confess to his father that was not the case. And then there's that amazing scene, isn't there, where Sir Ector takes young Arthur and all the assembled crowds are around. And the sword is replaced. And there before everyone, Arthur draws out the sword. And all are, in, all are amazed and wondering at this sight. Here is the true king of Britain, this humble boy that we had no, under, uh, never guessed anything about him. There he is, he draws a sword. But how, how much, how far greater is this scene that we have in Nazareth? How more astonishing is this scene? Jesus Christ can stand there and take the words of Isaiah and say, here they are fulfilled before you. Talk about timing. Talk about place. As one commentator said, an ancient prophecy written only for one person to read and that person had now read it. Amazing. Now there's three things I want you to note about the great claim that Jesus is making here. Because that's this astonishing claim. Three things then that he's claiming in this. The first thing, of course, is he is saying he is the spirit anointed one, isn't he? He is saying he is the spirit anointed one. Now, Isaiah, in a sense, was given the spirit, wasn't he, to preach the gospel. He was a gospel preacher, Isaiah was. But principally in his prophecy, he points not to himself, does he? But he points to the great servant of the Lord. And we see now revealed before us the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. He is the one upon whom the Spirit has come. And if we look back over Luke's gospel, we can see this charted for us, can't we? There we have, in his conception in the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit upon his mother, bringing forth this, the new creation from her womb. And then, as a baby, he's brought into the temple, isn't he? And the Spirit inspires Simeon to speak his prophecy over the young Jesus. And then, the John the Baptist goes out and says... The one who baptizes with the Spirit is coming after me. And then he comes. And the, the Father in heaven 
signals his love for the Son as the Spirit comes down on him in his baptism. And then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And in the Spirit, the Lord Jesus defeats the temptations of the evil one. And now he begins his public ministry in the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? Well, we see here God at work. That's the great name given for the Lord Jesus in Matthew's gospel, isn't it? He is Emmanuel, God with us. And where God is at work, there we see the Spirit. The Spirit is the great signature, the great sign that here is God and his work is a new work. This is a divine work here. Jesus is not simply a preacher. He is both the preacher and the one being preached. The fullness of the Spirit lies with him. And it is with that fullness now that he begins his ministry. This is not just another corrupt temporary, ultimately failing work of God. This is not that bright, shiny newness that fades, that we're so used to in our own society and in every culture and race and century. This is the great new work of redemption that God does in Christ. By his spirit. This is not done by human authority and by human power and by human wisdom. This is God's Messiah, God's Son, by the Spirit, doing God's new work. And so if you're, you know, we speak so much, often we hear in our culture and in the sub-Christian culture as well, we hear a lot of talk about the Spirit, don't we? And sometimes that talk about the Spirit can be reduced down to our own inner sense or our own feelings or our own hunches or intuitions. But that is not what the Bible reveals about the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is there to be seen. It's substantial. It's personal in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus himself. You want to see the Spirit at work? See the wonder of God made flesh. God become man. Doing his great work of salvation. Declaring that in the word, showing that the word itself brings the work of the spirit to witness to this. You want to find the work of the spirit, then look to Jesus. Look to who he is. Look to what he has done. Look to what he is doing. Look to the the sure and certain record of that in the word 
See, Jesus can take up just Isaiah with total confidence and say, here is the substance of the Spirit at work. And what is that work? Well, that's the third thing we see. The second thing we see here too, isn't it? He's bringing final salvation. He's bringing final salvation with him. Now, if we think about God coming amongst us, and if we think truly and really, as the Bible trains us to do, about the world that we live in, this present age of the world, with its corruptions, with its great rebellion of sin against God, with its darkness, what does the work of God look like if he comes into this world? It must be the work of salvation, mustn't it? Final salvation. And Isaiah knew that. As you go on through Isaiah, especially in the latter part of Isaiah, you see that played out more and more clearly. We don't just need rescue from Egypt. We don't just need rescue from Babylon. We need a new exodus from sin and from spiritual darkness and from the oppression that comes from all of that. We need God's final rescue. They'll usher in his great and final blessings. Isaiah knew that. And Jesus is now saying to an ordinary congregation in Nazareth, here it is, in me, with me and from me. To you if you will have it. And this is expressed in these marvellous, the marvellous poetry. The great signs of God's blessing upon us as we see here in verses 18 and 19. You know, the poor hearing the gospel. The broken hearted healed. The captives freed. The blind given sight. The oppressed given liberty. Now, there's great yearning for freedom from oppression that we see in these verses. That is a true and real thing, far beyond any mere oppression that we find in this world. You know, when we read the Bible, we see a lot of language, don't we, about who God is and what he has done. For example, the scriptures often talk about God as our great rock. And when we read that, we know that he's not simply our rock, is he? He's not a rock. But we read that. We read of the strong arm of the Lord going out into salvation. And we know from that where our eyes are lifted, aren't they? And we go beyond the imagery to see just a a smidgen, just a, a faint glimpse of the reality beyond all that. The wonder of God's strength and power, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. All his promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. But that's what we find in these verses here too, don't we? This is more than just what an optometrist can do or a a food program can do. Or an anti-trafficking, human trafficking program can do. This is more than what any social justice program in the world can do. We look at what 
Jesus promises in his gospel and we see from this the eternal realities of his salvation. That great gasp for freedom that we all know. Think about how that points to the blessings that will never end in Jesus Christ. We're being trained by scripture to look to him and to see in him the substance and the final perfection of all our longings. Because we know, don't we, the reverse of that as well. When we think of the oppression here, when we think of the captivities in these verses, we know deep down behind them all, behind all the visible problems, the visible captivities, the visible burdens that we all share in, we know behind all of them is an enemy that we can never escape ourselves. I mean, I'm looking out on a congregation and I know of people here who have terrible grief or terrible trauma from terrible things done long ago. And we know behind all of them is a sense, don't we, when we burrow down into them, when we drill down into them, we come to something that we know we can never solve ourselves. We can never solve them. There is a grip they may have on us that we can never ourselves unclasp, but for the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus And so as we look down and see that, we see also the freedom that he promises. And we are taught by this that that is true freedom that he offers, both now and always. The marvelous liberty from our worst enemies, from sin, from death, from the devil, from hell. From all of that spiritual darkness and slavery. The Lord Jesus has pulverized them in his victory on the cross. And so we may receive true liberty from him. Now you might be saying to me, well, that's just another Christian dodge, isn't it? We've still got all the problems of our life now. There you are, another Christian preacher encouraging people to not look at all the systems of oppression they suffer under now, just wait for the goodies from heaven one day. But there is no final solution in this life, is there? There is no final answer to that terrible slavery now, even the ones that we see. The reality is there is eternity It's not to be laughed off. It's not to be explained away. It's not to be regarded merely as the opiate of the masses or some fairy tale to keep people in line now. That is where all reality is headed. That is where all final answers are found. And Jesus stands before ordinary people as he stands before us and he says, today this is fulfilled in your ears. And that's the third thing we find 
in Jesus' claim here. The third thing, in your ears. It's interesting, isn't it? He didn't say before your eyes. You just see and that's okay. He says, in your ears. You must hear what I say. And that is no small thing. Because really behind that is you must hear by faith. And there is no receiving of Christ in all his claims about who he is without faith, is there? Without faith. But is that faith amongst the congregation in Nazareth? Well, let's move on to the second thing we have here, and that is the challenge that Jesus gives, the challenge that he gives. Well, we see there when they first hear him speak, they seem quite impressed, don't they? They marveled at his gracious words, which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, well, this was the man that we remember from Joseph, wasn't he? That was Joseph's son, wasn't it? My, he's come good now, hasn't he? And there's a sense of general polite appreciation for what he says. But Jesus doesn't leave it there, does he? He goes on, verse 23, and he challenges them with a proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Now, a common way that this is often taken by the commentators is to say Jesus is working out their real attitude and summing it up by this proverb. So this is really the people of Nazareth being sceptical. And Jesus is putting their scepticism into words using this common proverb. Physician, doctor, heal yourself. And that's been quite a common way to, to interpret this. But I actually think it should be taken in another way. Jesus is taking up this common proverb to challenge them. This is not just a Jewish saying, this is a universal saying, isn't it? He's not saying that it's not scepticism. The whole point about the proverb is people know that what the the doctor says is true, don't they? They just wish the doctor would follow his own advice. We all know doctors like that, don't we? Chain-smoking lung specialists. Not just doctors either. You know, gyms are mowing gardeners whose lawns are always overgrown. Um, You know, the handyman whose house is falling to pieces. And when we say heal yourself, there's an extension there, not just themselves, but their family, their place, their town. So Jesus is actually challenging them, isn't he? He's challenging them and saying, you know that what I say is true, but you do not want it for yourself. You should be saying this to me, he's saying. This is what you should be saying. You are the great doctor. Could you please heal us? We are your family. We are your neighborhood. We are your town. Please come and bring us liberty from darkness. Free us from our oppression. And Jesus is telling them what they should be saying. But they are not. Because within them, behind all their polite words, is hardened unbelief. And this is not new, is it? This is not new. 
Back in the days, as he goes on in his sermon to say, back in the days of Elijah and Elisha, there were many widows in Israel. There were many lepers in Israel. And they were not healed. They were not fed. It was a Sidonian widow that was fed. It was a military general from Syria of all places that was healed and brought into the kingdom of God. But not those who should have heard and should have asked and should have received with faith the blessings of their God and King. See, that's really the hard-hitting element of what Jesus is saying here. He's hitting literally close to home, isn't he? Now, there's an amazing promise here in these verses about the Gentiles coming in and joining with the Jews in the wonderful promises of the gospel. There's certainly that there, but I don't think that's the main point here. I don't think that's what... Now, preaching that message was what drove them to take Jesus to the cliff and, throw, and seek to throw him off. What drove their hostility? Jesus pointing to their unbelief. Jesus pointing to their hardness against the message of the gospel. And that may be the case for some of you here this morning. You may, have hit, you may have sat in many synagogue services or church services over many years. But the claims of Christ never bite deep. The wonder of God amongst us, taking our nature to himself to declare to us the mysteries of his mercy, they never move us. We keep them at arm's length we, <clears throat> we are na- actively hostile to them. Well, what is the message that Jesus has for us? What is the destiny of those who do not believe? Well, yes, certainly, they lose the kingdom. They are subject to God's wrath. They are not healed. They are not cleansed. But there's a sharpness here to it as well, isn't it, that If you stay in your unbelief, you will still see the advance of the gospel and you will not be part of it. It's quite sobering, isn't it? Perhaps the entire church in Australia must hear that as we see the word of God advance in many other places but not here. But each one of us needs to see this, don't we? Now, the great reality is that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and every eye behold that Jesus will be King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no escape from that. You will see this. Your unbelief won't shield you from this. Your unbelief won't provide some convenient little corner in which you can carry on pottering about in your own self-regarding unbelief while everything else moves on. No Everyone will be brought to see Jesus of Nazareth 
as God's anointed one. And there will be many witnesses that will stand up and testify against you in that final day if you will not believe. And they'll come from the four corners of the earth. And they'll come from the most incredible backgrounds as you can imagine and they will all stand and testify to you about the wonder of the one in whom they've put their trust. Will you abandon that unbelief and put your trust in him too? Or finally, and this is the third thing, will you join in that response that Jesus receives? So this is really where their rage comes from, doesn't it? The way he has fingered them for their unbelief. And he's put that front and center. And so they drag him out and drag him to the brow of the hill. And yet then we see his sovereignty, don't we? He walks freely in their midst and there is no harm done to him. God's word will prevail. As uh, Bob Thomas was saying to me the other day, we are all immortal until our job is done. We are immortal until that day when God calls us to himself. This is the Lord Jesus. But in particular, here we see the authority of the Lord Jesus, don't we? He's the one who said in John's Gospel, I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. There is nothing going to turn him or thwart his mission. But he comes and he goes as he pleases until the day appointed. What does it do? It reveals the hearts of all those involved. Remember, what did Simeon say just a chapter or two earlier over the baby Jesus? What did Simeon say? This child shall be for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for the revealing of many hearts. So this is solid preaching from God's word we have from Jesus here, don't we? And that is what God's word does. It reveals the hearts. Where are our hearts this morning? Yes, you may be burdened with many griefs and sorrows and regrets. But as you look to the the one who gives liberty and sight and gospel, no matter how weighed down you might be, as you look to him and put your hope in him, know that he is your freedom, the giver of your freedom, the giver of your hope, But there's no neutral ground, is there? There's no just little tasting of the gospel. He is the liberator. Or you are still in darkness and you are shutting out that light, as the people of Nazareth did. I pray for all of you that God would be merciful to you and that you would know him as your liberator as your rescuer and then as your Lord and as your King. Amen. Let's pray together. Most gracious, merciful Father, we thank you for the life-giving message of the gospel. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, equipped by the Spirit, wielding the word, bringing the wonders of the promises of the gospel to us.
May we lay hold of him, trust him, and be renewed by his strength day by day. And we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.